0: Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us, by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. Delicious Revolution Show.
1: Here at Three Stone Hearth, we've defined our purpose to be nourishing transformation through traditional wisdom. We want the transformation itself to be nourished and also to be nourishing, and that that transformation happens on all these different levels simultaneously, from the transformation of cabbage into sauerkraut to our own personal transformation to economic and social transformation of the culture. And we're trying to work on all these levels. My revelation in at cooking school was that Food was also very much about relationship and was about people. And I decided that I didn't want to be cooking like behind closed doors for people that I didn't meet. So for the past, uh, we're just celebrating 10 years right now. So for 10 years, we've been doing it. And three of the five co-founders are still in the company. And now we've got 20 worker owners and about 20 employees. And anywhere from 500 to 800 orders every week that we're filling.
2: (laughs) Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills.
0: And I'm Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of food including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists, bringing you in-depth conversations with some amazing people.
2: On this third season of Delicious Revolution, we're bringing you stories and perspectives from the unseen places in food systems, going behind kitchen doors into underground nests of native bees, under the waves, and to the faraway origins of flavors we love, just to name a few. I'm speaking with people who work with food in places we normally cannot see or don't notice. It's a season of unseen stories of food.
0: You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Delicious Revolution wherever you get your podcasts and you'll find us. Our website is deliciousrevolutionshow.com, where we have pictures, links, and more information about all the people on our show. Jessica Prentice is a founder of Three Stone Hearth, a community-supported kitchen and worker-owned cooperative in Berkeley, California. She worked as a chef in the Headland Center for the Arts in Marin, and then she founded the Headland Hearth Bakery and Cafe in 2001. Jessica educated herself in sustainable agriculture issues and was hired as the director of the education programs at the Ferry Plaza Farmer's Market in San Francisco. She coined the word locavore and co-created the Local Food Wheels. She's the author of Full Moon Feast, Food and the Hunger for Connection. Here's Chelsea's interview with Jessica Prentice.
2: So I guess a lot of the focus of the season are these unseen stories about food, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to talk to you for a whole hour about like food and traditional diets and whatever you want. But I actually think you're thinking about how groups of people... Eat and are fed, and how you feed them, and how that works in a bigger kind of systemic or structural way, right? Yeah, and then how you create a system that supports or works works with that.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I guess I think my interest really is in how communities feed themselves. So, how communities have fed themselves traditionally, and I think one thing that I find really challenging and frustrating about our culture is how individualistic it is and how all the solutions that were pointed towards are individual solutions. And I understand that those can be incredibly important and we're each on an individual journey in life. But I I think what what I'm more interested in at this time is thinking about how can we meet group needs how can we meet communal needs and feeling really strongly too that our society as it currently is is failing us and um i mean it's nobody's fault but our own in some sense we've created this this society but it's not doing a good job feeding us um on any level so uh by feeding us, I include um, the nutrition that we need on a daily basis, but also our spiritual needs, our emotional needs, our psychological needs, our creative needs. None of those are getting fed. Um, our need for community, um, et cetera. So um, we actually say here at Three Stone Heart that our purpose, we've defined our purpose to be nourishing transformation through traditional wisdom. And that nourishing transformation piece is um, – I think says a lot. It both says that we want the transformation itself, um, to be nourished and also to be nourishing and that that transformation happens on all these different levels simultaneously from the transformation of cabbage into sauerkraut to, um, our own personal transformation to, uh, economic and, um, and social transformation of the culture. And we're trying to work on all these levels
2: simultaneously. Let's break them down a little bit. Like you are a chef mm-hmm. and you have been for a long time, but it seems like you've interacted with a lot of other parts of the food system along that journey of cooking for people. So how'd you start cooking?
1: <laughs> so it goes back to a sort of a personal transformation story. I, um I grew up thinking I wanted to teach and assuming that I'd be a teacher after I got out of college and so I I graduated from college and eventually made my way to teaching via waitressing um, in my 20s. And I spent a year teaching in East Oakland and was really miserable and sort of had this revelation, like, I actually don't want to be a teacher. And then I was left with this big question, well, what do I want to do? Because that was what I'd always assumed that I wanted to do. And it was during that time I took, I gave myself six months off. And during that six month time period, I just gave myself the space to explore, you know, do some soul searching. I uh, worked a lot with the book, The Artist's Way. I worked through the, the 12 weeks of that with a friend. And that was really transformative because it's designed to unearth things that are buried inside you that you don't. That your conscious mind isn't aware of that you might want to do or be drawn to or, um, and it's about creativity. But for me, it was very much about finding my life's path. And what I realized is that I'd always been really interested in food and had a prejudice via my, my sort of family culture that food wasn't important. And this was early to mid nineties and really this revolution in the idea that food is really important hadn't happened yet. So it wasn't yet in the society, this idea that, that f- food is profoundly important on a political and economic and ecological level. So it, it was sort of me realizing that, that food was political, was ecological, was personal, and that it was very connected to health, and to our personal health and to the health of the planet. And so through that realization, then I gave myself the space to pursue it as a career. And so by that time, by the time I figured that out, I was, I had been using up savings. And so then I was broke. (laughs) So then I had to work waitressing for another, I don't know, six months to a year or something like that, saved up money. And then I went to cooking school in New York to the Natural Gourmet, which at the time was the only chef's training program that was focused on food and health in the environment. And so that was always central to me. I never really wanted to be like a restaurant chef or a gourmet chef. That was not of interest. It was always about healing foods and ecological sustainability. And now there's many programs that offer that, including local ones, but at the time there wasn't. So I went to New York and then I came back and I had had my revelation in at cooking school was that food was also very much about relationship and was about people. And I decided that I didn't want to be cooking like behind closed doors for people that I didn't meet or see. So then that knocked out almost all chef jobs. Um, but I threw a, a very uh, fortuitous, um, and synchronistic series of events ended up as the chef at the Headland Center for the Arts in Marin, which was really my dream job because I was cooking for people that I knew and they also happened to be artists. And so they were very much embedded in a, in a creative space for themselves. And so I got to feed their creativity, their work, um, and get paid to do it and be in a beautiful space. It's a famous kitchen, um, designed by Ann Hamilton, uh, with an Alan Scott oven on one end, brick oven, wood fired oven. And it was just amazing space to cook in for four years. Um, so I did that. But then by the end of that, I realized that, um, I, I really, I, my dream job actually also had to include, um, more sort of intellectual work around food. And so, um, even though I loved, Cooking all the time. It's, you know, it's physically very exhausting. I cooked for, for 10 to 100 people every night, you know, five nights a week. And I needed to find, I knew that the next stage would include some form of teaching or sort of more explicitly political or intellectual work. So I, I finally left that job and then I started doing catering for Uh, food systems, workshops and events. And so that was great because I would, I tried to make the food match the conversation, which often doesn't happen. Like people are having the conversation, but then what they're actually eating is not. And that drives me crazy. Um, I really can't stand those kinds of inconsistencies. (laughs) And a lot of my life's work is about trying to, um, make things, you know, make the walk match the talk. Um, in some way or another. So uh, I did that for a while, and then that led to a job at the Ferry Plaza Farmer's Market as the Director of Education for Queso, the Center for Urban Education about Sustainable Agriculture. And so that was great because I was doing um, education work around food systems issues and also doing cooking classes as part of it, which I'd gotten more and more into wanting to, you know, empower other people to cook for themselves. And... That was good, except especially with the cooking classes, I noticed how many people just came to watch. And there's just like a huge culture of voyeurism around cooking. And because of cooking television and all this stuff, you know, um, uh, food network, et cetera. And I was sort of shocked because I was trying to be really practical about it again, like <laughs> in my earnest way, like, you know, I went to the market and I bought, like I would walk around the market and I would buy these ingredients and then I would actually prep and cook them in front of everybody. I had uh, um, a program I called Real Meals Real Fast because I was trying to make the connection between all these ingredients that you're surrounded by and dinner on the table. Because I was really shocked how many people shop at the farmer's market and only just buy a few things to eat, but don't like actually make that their food, their daily food. And, and so I was trying to make that connection, but again, people just came to watch and a lot of people wouldn't really ever do it. And I started to realize that one of the challenges in getting people to cook at home has to do with the way that we've set up our society, which is very atomized. People live in very small households for the most part. Some people live alone. A lot of people live alone. Um, people live with one partner, maybe one child. It's a household of one, two, three, maybe four individuals at the most. And cooking at that scale is has some inherent problems with it. It's not very efficient. It's not particularly economical. It's um, not particularly ecological. And it's not particularly fun. And so I started, whereas, you know, traditionally, when people were living in a culture where they're making all their food from scratch. They tended to be either living in, in a, a sort of extended family household um, or in a village sort of atmosphere. And I had been cooking in the Headland Center for the Arts, which was, again, 10 to 100 people, which has a huge amount of um, efficiencies of scale, essentially. So, and I had, while I was at the Headland Center for the Arts, also, I had been very... um struck by how many people would go through the artist residency program would so appreciate this eating and community and having food prepared for them. And then at the end, they would be sort of bereft to go back to our society and have like, be like, I don't know what to eat. Like, I'm not a cook. I don't have time to cook. Um, and I can't eat McDonald's anymore because you ruined it. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And that just really struck me that we just don't have options, um, along with this whole thing that I started thinking about scale. So I started to frame it in terms of that our society sort of offers us two main different scales for food. And one is factory scale, which is really making us all sick and devastating the environment and, um, economically ruining everything as far as I'm concerned. And then the home scale, which um, is great, but it's sort of, um, it's limited to, it's 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 constrained by all these factors that I was just mentioning. And really feeling like we need to build something intermediate, you know, something that I consider community scale, you know, something that's larger than the home scale, but smaller than the factory scale. And so that's really how the CSK idea crystallized as trying to be sort of a communal and community-based solution to this problem of a lack of nourishing foods, um, and especially as I got into the traditional diets work, you know, read nourishing traditions and listened to Sally Fallon and and all of that, uh, it, the, the problem only exacerbated because then it's not just cooking it from scratch, but it's also fermenting and it's making long simmered bone broth and soaking all your grains, and it just makes the cooking that much more labor-intensive. Um, and that much more difficult to do and making that much less sense if you're only doing it for one or two people. So um, I sort of coalesced a group um, of people around this idea who were all had similar and overlapping interests and um, and we started meeting. And then from that point on, it was a group endeavor. Um, the five of us planned the, the um, wrote the business plan, decided on the name found the location, incorporated as a cooperative, et cetera. And so for the past, uh, we're just celebrating 10 years right now. So for 10 years, we've been doing it. And three of the five co-founders are still in the company. And now we've got 20 worker owners and about 20 employees and, um, you know, anywhere from 500 to 800 orders every week that we're filling.
2: Well, there's there's a lot of questions for me about that. That was a lot of information. Um, But I'm interested in kind of this middle space. I think I was a volunteer here about six years ago, and um, one of the things that I noticed about well, there's a lot of things I noticed about working here that really stood out to me. But one of them was that um, I was always really am- amazed at people's orders, like what they ordered and who these people were and how this food fit into their life, right? So a lot of the things you're talking about are things like kombucha or bone broth or these very like labor intensive things that I hear all the time people say, like, I can't do that, right? And I think there's lots of politics of gender and labor and time and how you do or don't care for your body and Mm -hmm. cost and all these things embedded in that. But one, but this felt like this was another grocery store in a certain way, this was another farmer's market. Like Mm -hmm. you, this is one of those stops you make in your week. And for lots of people, it wasn't the totality of all of their meals for the week. So maybe can you talk about the community supported kitchen model for people who don't know what that is and what role that plays in people's lives? Sure. Yeah. So, um, The way that we work is we have an
1: online menu. So we have a different menu each week. We have some things we make every week, like chicken bone broth and beef bone broth and, you know, a handful of things that are staples. But then most of the menu rotates or changes from week to week. And so we plan a menu for each week. That menu goes online for pre-order sales on Thursday evening People have almost a week to order from it. So from Thursday evening till the following Wednesday morning, the, the pre-ordering is open online. And so people have accounts and they go in and they say, I want one of this, two of that. Uh, we also have a, a range of retail items that we carry as well, in addition to what we make. And then um, we close the menu ordering system on Wednesday morning. Uh, we're printing out all the pre-orders and then, on Wednesday evening and Thursday is our big pickup windows. So people come and pick up the orders that they pre-ordered. We also have delivery to Marin, San Francisco, and the East Bay. And so those pre-ordered for delivery orders go out. And then, um, we also try to make extra of everything and we have a brick and mortar store during our pickup hours. So during pickup hours, you can pick up and you can add something on. Also, you can just walk in off the street and, and purchase. Um, So in terms of what people order and how it fits into their lives, it's really the whole range. You have some people for whom this is a major component of their family's food. Um, We don't make meals. We make components, which we uh, pack into returnable mason jars and people pay a deposit on the mason jar and then they bring it back so we do the bone broths, we do soups, we do stews, we do sauces, uh, we do casseroles, uh, we've even started doing a salad. We have a salad in a jar every week. Um, we have desserts, uh, usually like a pudding or a gelatina, which is like a healthy jello. Um, some baked, you know, brownies, cakes, uh, things like that, oatmeal, granola, a paleo kind of granola, which we call paleo crunch. Um, fermented foods, sauerkrauts, pickles of various kinds, pickled all, all different kinds of things, pickled sister seaweed and pickled jicama and all different kinds of pickled things. And then a whole range of beverages. I think we offer 13 different beverages every week. So uh, kefirs, kombuchas, junes, uh, we're starting to make uh, shrubs, um, dehydrated, crispy almonds. So a few snack foods too. And so, um, One thing that I was worried about when we first started is this: I was worried that we were just sort of feeding into this convenience model and um, reinforcing this these ideas that so many Americans have about how they don't have time to cook and they just want convenience. Um, but the truth is, we're actually pretty inconvenient, <laughs> so we don't actually—I don't think—reinforce that. Um, people will really have to go out of their way to get to us because we have very, very limited hours, and you know, people have to go and pre-order. Um, and they don't, that you can't, I mean, there's all these ordering systems now, food service things where you can go and like, it's very convenient. You've got an app and you like, and then they deliver it to your door, like 45 minutes later. We're not at all like that. Like it's slow food where, where, you know, all of our pork is brined before cooking because based on some research about, um, pork's effect on the blood and so like you know all of our brown rice is soaked all of our pork is brined all of um, you know we're we're doing everything has to be really planned in advance and so pre-orders really help us because they help us to figure out how much of something we need to make so we have a whole weekly production schedule that is trying to meet this these orders um, the other reason that it doesn't really play into the convenience thing is that we're not like I said offering meals um, you st- you still have to do something with the food. Um, we even, some of it isn't even cooked. Um, I didn't mention, but we make like a meat patty or meatloaf every week and that's frozen raw. So you have to cook that. So I think it actually encourages people to cook because they have some part of it done for them. And then they're working around it. If they bought a casserole, they make a salad. If, um, Uh, our meaty pints are often like, um, like Tex-Mex ground beef would be an example. And we add liver to that. So we're adding liver to all of our ground meat dishes too, to enhance nutrition. Um, and there you're going to like get some tortillas and some lettuce and make it into, you know, it's going to be part of your taco dinner or, um, uh, you know, making, putting something over rice or, um, over pasta or whatever. So you're actually, it's giving you some components that get you part way there to your meal, but you're still cooking. And so I think if, if anything, it actually encourages people to not eat out. It ends up replacing eating out for people and gets people eating at home more and cooking some components. And that's how I use it. I mean, I buy our food almost every week. And I always want to have our bone broths on hand, you know, then I can make a risotto or, you know, deglaze for a sauce or something like that. We'll have our meat patties for breakfast, you know, sausage patties for breakfast or for dinner. Um, my partner will take our soups for lunch,
2: things like that. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. You know, I I recently was interviewing Anna Lepay, and she was talking about that, you know, that statistic now that Americans eat more than half of their meals out of the house and after talking to her I was like I wonder what that means like does it mean that you go buy a rotisserie chicken at the grocery store and then you make a salad at home I was thinking about all these different ways that you know I and lots of other people interact with what eating out actually is but this seems kind of like the community supported kitchen is kind of like a systemic challenge to what eating out could be because there's help with some of these things right where you don't get to just bring it home and i mean i guess you could just eat your meaty pint like with the spoon if you just heated it up or something but it's not a whole meal right so it it actually invites it invites you into your kitchen in a certain way
1: yeah i mean that's been my experience that's what i've seen i think it invites people back into their kitchen because it helps um And it, it, you know, it's sort of halfway between having a private personal chef that comes into your house and makes food just for you, um, and going to Whole Foods and getting, you know, whatever carry out from their deli there is. Um, but it does, it's, it, it offers components that then people do things with. I mean, people take our soups and stews and add other vegetables to them and stretch them. Um, I mean, I sometimes, if we're not too busy in line, we'll ask people like, what do you do with these things? Or, you know, somebody, will, if somebody mentions like, um, you know, I always get, you know, do you have a pesto? I always get your pesto. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll see if I can find them one. Um, I'm like, well, why do you always get the pesto? What do you do with it? Because that's one of the things we make on a on a pretty regular basis each week. And um, and I'm just always curious about their answers, like um, as somebody said, oh well, I'll, I oh I cook soba noodles and I toss it with soba noodles and that's like one meal, you know, and like oh really, that's so interesting. Like I wouldn't think soba noodles in a pesto, but um, that's her thing. And um, so no, people are interacting with the food in in a way. I feel like it really more than anything offers support. That's an that's an in between kind of support. Um, nothing that we're selling is coming out hot you know, it's not like ready to eat food with the exception we do a broth bar. And I guess the other exception would be the salad in the jar, but even the salad in a jar, you know, we recommend people take it out of the fridge 15 minutes before and then, you know, um, either shake it or toss it. Um, so it's nothing's intended to be just like you open the jar and you eat it like everything you have to interact with in some way. And we also sell doughs, which you're actually, or, you know, DIY slash dough, Things so falafel dough is one of our favorites, and so you have to cook that. You, can, you know that's it's meant to be cooked. We also do a West African fritter dough, um, uh, like a veggie burger dough, an, an Indian vada dough. So a lot of the things are like you know things you wouldn't. You're probably not going to make falafel from scratch, but if you've got a falafel dough, then falafel becomes a meal. So. I I do think that overall it has the effect of inviting people back into the kitchen and just doing, you know, some part of it and, and especially doing the sort of most nutrient dense part. So then they can fill it out with the easier stuff like a salad or like rice or like pasta or something like that. And, you know, I mean, people are going to eat pasta who can eat pasta are going to eat pasta, but how much better if you're putting like our ragu bolognese on it, which has liver in it and, you know, is grass fed beef and, You know, I mean, Whole Foods, though, people have this impression that Whole Foods quality is high. Like, they're not using organic ingredients, and we are, you know. So it's a whole other level of uh, nutrient density that we're offering.
2: Yeah, and I think that offers this opportunity, like, for transformation of what you think you can do in the kitchen, too, right? There's a lot more... um, there's a lot more available to you in a in a short amount of time between juggling all the rest of the things that go on in your life. Another way that I've heard of lots of people eating the food from the kitchen here is um, when they're sick, uh-huh. right? And so using it as a big support to get these, you know, using this traditional diet model as this place to get things that they don't have time, don't have energy for, or just they don't have the capacity for. So it provides this kind of incredible service, I think, to lots of people who don't have access to that some other way. Mm-hmm. Has, has that been your experience? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, a lot of people come to us because they're referred by healthcare practitioners. I would say that's just a huge, probably a third or half of our customer base. And so, yeah, they're coming here specifically for medicine you know, in the form of food. And, um, and then you also have people who just come when they have a cold. I mean, I know people who are themselves personal chefs. And yet, and and they're always kind of ashamed to come here and, and they come but they they're like, I'm sick, and I need some good food and I can't cook it myself. You know, so from that kind of just like you've got a cold and you want to get some of our chicken soup to um, no, you're, you know, you're dealing with a serious health crisis um You've just gotten a diagnosis of something and you need this food. And then people, a, a lot of people with, with chronic conditions, p- people who are um, dealing with some kind of autoimmune uh, disease and, you know, are trying to eat like a very clean sort of paleo diet or whatever. It's like um, that's, you know, it's, that's hugely challenging. It's hugely challenging to meet those needs. And then you've got families where you've got a couple where one person is, you know, needing this special diet and the other person doesn't. And it it really helps to be able to purchase some things that can keep you at home and, and, and sharing food. So um, yeah, that's huge. And then the other thing is um, people with babies and, you know, new families is another huge, huge part of our um, customer base because these were times traditionally where you would have, you know, people would bring food And people still do, um, to some extent, but it's been interesting to watch families kind of go through these, um, ebbs and flows where, um, you know, they'll have a newborn and they'll come to us every week and buy a lot of food. And then as the kid gets a little older and they're able they're you know, the time is freed up a little bit to cook more food at home, then they'll come less often or they'll buy fewer things and then they'll get pregnant again and have another baby and then they'll be back again. So you see that ebb and flow happen to some extent, or even just in different circumstances. We have one family that's been shopping with us for many years. Their girls are both older. One's a first grader, one's a fourth grader now, um are Yeah. Second and fourth. And, um, but, uh, the mom has just been really busy with a huge project. And so they're in like every week buying a lot of food just because that's the circumstances. And so to have, to have something that's, that's there when you need it, you know, um, I think is really, is is really a service to people, you know, because you might not need it all the time, but when you have a cold, maybe you need it or you broke your foot. And you literally can't cook and you need bone broth, you know, to help you heal. It's like, if you live anywhere else, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, you do a lot of online ordering, you know, and get from a lot of different places with a lot of um, packaging and a lot of plastic. But here, you know, we keep all of that as minimal as we can and, you
2: know, build it in. So, yeah, uh, I see that too. Well, recently... I make bone broth at home, but in the summer I make less bone broth because it's hot, right? And uh, I've had to have a lot of bone broth recently. I drove like an hour out of my way to go get my bone Mm broth, which is not as good as mine. Mm -hmm. But um, I was thinking about that and I was thinking about how much I rely on these relationships that, uh, whether it be at the farmer's market or through farmers or just, you know, through the person that I get milk from or all of these different places and – they feel they're flexible. Sometimes they go on vacation, mm-hmm. and then I don't get milk for a couple of weeks, or, or it changes how my pickup works, or things like that. And there's something um, that also feels like I get to participate in an ecosystem mm-hmm. in this way that um, that's flexible and has to adapt, but that um, you know maybe that's what living in community at and eating in community actually looks like Mm -hmm. now. It felt strange to drive an hour to go get -hmm. the thing that I normally cook at home, but I was so happy somebody was there. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, and that's part of the shift too, with the CSK
1: of, um, of, of having our weekly menu change and part of how it also doesn't play into the convenience mentality because you can't, you know, you can't just get what you want when you want it. And that's so much part of our, Expectation around our food system, and in every instance that our food system has met that expectation, it does so at the expense of the ecology, or the economy, or the animals, or whatever. I mean, McDonald's is the perfect example of that. And so we we don't do that. We don't offer what whatever you want when you want it. You know, we offer a limited list of things for a limited period of time and a limited pickup. And so. Yeah, that, um, people do have to interact with their, you know, for a food system to be, uh, sustainable and, um, and sustaining in that way. It, it, it needs to have participation on a lot of levels. And so I really do feel like our, you know, quote unquote customers, it's, I don't really feel like they're customers, but you know, our, our supporters, they have to be active participants in this as well. I mean, even including they have to wash their own jars and count them and return them and sort them. And that's, that's built in. that's part of their, the work that they do um, to help make this possible. So it really is a community effort.
2: Well, so another thing that stood out for me being a volunteer here was it was the first like women run kitchen I'd ever worked in. And the, It was safe, right? It was actually pretty quiet a lot of times, but all of those like, um, sex jokes and all the things that I was really used to about working and the speed, I Mm -hmm. guess, too, like this fairly dangerous speed that I sort of connotated with kitchen work. It was different here. There were different choices being made and they were not only being made, but they were being enforced by the whole community. So I thought, I felt kind of excited to come talk to you about how do you guys see this whole structure? I mean, we've talked about who your supporters are. We've mm-hmm. talked a little bit about what these choices and what you make are, but how do you run a community supported kitchen over time? And what is, what are those choices? Yeah.
1: So that's huge. I mean, that's what I'm really, I'm really engaged with the most at the moment is, is how we organize and, um, and how we self-organize and how we distribute um, authority throughout the company decisions about things. Um, I think these are just extremely important and, um, complex questions, uh, around organization. And I've been very, because I'm so interested in traditional diets and have this very strong belief that traditional peoples had, you know, pre or non-industrial, um, cultures had come up with, Amazingly, um, sophisticated and wise ways to nourish themselves. I also feel like, um, many of those cultures came up with amazingly sophisticated and wise ways to organize, um, and to get things done. And I have been intrigued by those for years. And for us, we, you know, we incorporated as a cooperative. So we said at the beginning, we're going to be a worker cooperative, which essentially, means that the the there's no absentee owners anybody who's an owner in the business actually works here and they have to work here full-time 30 hours a week or more and that the ownership is shared and so the profits are shared among that ownership and we currently have 20 worker owners um but a lot of people associate that then with a sort of um uh paralyzing consensus model where everybody has to agree on everything. And we were also very clear from the beginning that we didn't want that. Um, but we didn't necessarily know what would be in its place. And we had built so much trust among the co-founders that while we were just still sort of running the show, um, we 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 largely actually did operate sort of on a consensus model. We would talk about everything until we came to agreement. And especially because the one man that was a co-founder with us um, got ill fairly quickly in our, um, you know, after two years. So then it was basically four women running the company for a good three or four years after that. Um, and being women, you don't want to disagree with anybody. And so, you know, we did a lot of sort of... Um, Long, long meetings coming to agreement about lots of details and to the point where we were like, this is just not working anymore. And even though we didn't subscribe to the idea of consensus, we were largely using it um, as a default sort of thing. Um, so at that point we really started to seek out what would be our formal governance structure. And also we were in the process of expanding the cooperative and inviting new cooperative members in. And so, um, those two things really needed to go hand in hand. And we stumbled upon a, um, governance system called holacracy and we began to implement it and we're still using it. Um, which is, it's, it's, um, it's fairly similar to sociocracy, which is, um, also called dynamic governance. And these are sort of, um, based on an idea of consent, but not consensus. And holacracy in particular is designed to be, to, to build in, um, lots of freedom for innovation and adaptability. Um, but at the same time, um, having having other people weigh in on decisions uh, who are in roles that might care about a decision. So um, we've been very intrigued. There's also a book that came out just a couple of years ago called Reinventing Organizations, which is purporting to sort of reveal this new sort of self-managing paradigm that many companies around the world are starting to use and how successful it can be really based on, um, allowing a huge amount of freedom within the company being fairly decentralized, not having a structural hierarchy, though sometimes they have a hierarchy of functions, uh, which is a little bit different, but not a hierarchy of people. And a bunch of us read that book and got very influenced by it. Um, and that's the article I just published on Medium was critiquing one aspect of the book, which is that, uh, his assertion that it's new, that these, that these ways of organizing are new, because I actually see them very much in evidence in Native California and in, in, um, cultures, uh, pre-contact cultures here in what is now California, uh, very, very similar sort of ways of organizing. And I think actually the fact that those cultures thrived for thousands of years you know anywhere from eight to ten thousand years are is the likely estimate of how long those cultures were here um, actually gives us the best evidence of all that they work um, you know that that kind of uh uh decentralization and um it's a it's a it's a, i think the best way to describe it is kind of egalitarian individualism so there's 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 a huge amount of freedom within it, but also a huge amount of commitment to the group. And that's what I think we haven't been good at finding that balance. Like where, where organizations have been cooperative or egalitarian, they haven't allowed for the freedom. And that's gets really um, constraining and, um, and also um, not agile Um, but then where you've had lots of agility and, um, innovation, then you haven't had the egalitarianism and then you have this, you know, incredible concentration of wealth that we're really experiencing once again in this culture, which is, um, sort of a chronic situation for us of, of stratification and, you know, just a few people holding onto a lot of the resources and a real lack of access on the part of a lot of people. So, um, so this is part of what we're doing here at, at Three Stone. Is really experimenting with these uh, self management principles and using holocracy as our governance system. And personally, I really love it. I'm learning a huge amount through that, and um, and feel like it's it's also bringing us and it, and it's you know it's interesting that you started out by mentioning that we're sort of women run. We are still a majority of I think of the 20 worker owners, only um, four are men. So four or five are men, but so the majority of us are women, um, and the majority, and that's about the same for, in terms of the employee breakdown, um, maybe a quarter men here, um, and three quarters women or two thirds, a third, something like that. So it's definitely a lot of women, but women tend to have, um, tend to be fairly conflict averse in my experience. And, and so there's a lot of, um, uh, lack of clarity and lack of being explicit, um, a sort of allergy to taking on authority and expressing authority. And so um, all the things, the positive things that you commented on, you know, the, the sort of inclusivity and the nurturing aspect of the kitchen are... Um, are there, but what we need to work on is the clarity, the explicitness, and the willingness to take on authority and make difficult decisions and move things forward, um, without everybody agreeing necessarily, you know? So, um, holacracy is, is helpful in, t- in terms of that. I think it, it helps us to strike a balance. Um, we're still feeling our way through
2: with that for sure. That seems like a huge challenge as to, Well, one is to form a model, right? And see what that's like to start it. But then those things change over time, right? So they need, that needs to happen as people's lives change and as the size and the scale changes. And, um, in order to continue to make those choices that matter to whatever the values of what you're, what you're doing are. Um, I think another challenge I see is like, is price, right? Is price and access. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I was here, that was a big conversation that was happening. I'm sure it's not over. Mm-hmm. Like, what? How has that changed over the time of running this business? And
1: yeah, so no, it's it it continues to be um, just a, a huge question and a huge sort of, uh, in some ways, unanswerable question. Um, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time feeling really stuck between needing to pay farmers well and ranchers well. And um, we'd actually like to pay farmers and ranchers more than we do. We'd like to buy even um, even cleaner food than we do. Um, and that would, you know, for what, you know, because of our economy, the cleaner the food, the more expensive, you know, in terms of ingredients for the most part. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, really wanting to pay farmers and ranchers well. Um, on another hand, so I'm going to have three hands here. <laughs> um, on a second hand, also wanting to pay our staff a living wage, which has become an extremely um, challenging thing as the Bay Area economy has gotten so insane with the stratification that I was talking about. And housing prices are through the roof. And um, people just can't get by in the Bay area anymore, um, on less than some number. And, you know, there's various different numbers that are out there. Um, and so needing to pay staff well, and at the same time, keep food prices reasonable. And that just feels like, and, you know, a huge tangle, like, how do you do it? Um, we've been, really focusing as the cooperative has grown, we've been really focusing on raising wages. And that's like the top of our list of what we're trying to do because everybody in this company is underpaid and people can't stay and people can't live in the Bay area. Um, and the only thing that we've been able to do is raise prices. Um, we, you know, the, the other, the dream for a long time was um, that we could somehow create enough efficiencies that we could avoid that but i just don't think we can um and uh so you know we've been raising prices and that's depressed demand to some extent um but it's also uh it's helped us to um create a more livable working situation um but then the access question looms large and uh you know there's a huge number of people that don't that wouldn't necessarily value the food that we're making and so then that becomes an education question um if we care which we do um but there are some people who value the food that we're making that feel that they can't afford it and that gets really tricky too because um you know some people actually can't afford it and some people just feel that they can't afford it and there that's that's a really you know it's that's a really tough call. I mean, it um, thinking that, you know, there, there are people for whom, you know, other things just become more valuable. And um, we have a society also that's pressuring us a huge amount around technology and other things. And so, um, you know, we've readily all taken on, you know, cell phone contracts that are, if we took that money and we spent it on, (laughs) Pastured meats. Instead, it's a pretty big chunk of budget. Um, and also, as we're spending, so you know, as a society, we're spending less and less on food as a percentage every year. So, even though people have this per- perception that food prices are going up and up and up, um, I think the figures are something like around nineteen seventy. We were spending about eighteen percent, sixteen or eighteen percent of income on food. Now we're spending about nine percent. Um, also then we were spending about 9% of income on healthcare and now we're spending like 16, 17%. So we're spending much more on healthcare and much less on food. And I think those two are directly related. Um, but not everybody sees it that way. Um, And so we have this perception that this food is so expensive, and yet, um, you know, in in parts of Africa, people are spending 40% of income on food, and we're spending nine. And so uh, partly it has to do with um, how much we're spending on housing and how much we're spending on everything else um, that we think is, you know – uh, a necessity I've you know, for a long time I've been frustrated with what we consider necessities versus what we consider luxuries. And people think of this food as a luxury, but I think of it as a necessity. And I think there's a lot of other things that are actually luxuries like cell phones, you know? So, so that's tough. And yet at the same time, there are, you know, there are huge problems of, um, wealth concentration and there are people who, um, are living living in extremely limited economic, uh, situations. And, and, and then with, you know, what I consider like a real health crisis going on too, we see more and more people that like literally can't work because they're too ill to work because they're dealing with some major health crisis and they need this food more than anybody. Um, but they have no money and, uh, they may have the education whereby they could be earning a good living, but, um, you know, through, uh, some kind of autoimmune or, um, Lyme disease or something like they're severely debilitated. And so, uh, we definitely see those folks and that's really heartbreaking. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very complex. We've got some things that we're working on, um, to try to move out of that scrunch that we feel like we're in, uh, because it's really, um, It's something that we have to figure out for the model. If the model is going to persist, um, if it's going to thrive and it's going to truly do what it aims to do, uh, we somehow have to figure it out in the context of this economic system, which, um, you know, subsidizes, uh, toxic food and, um, makes, uh, true food, you know, nourishing food really expensive. Well, so
2: maybe let's, let's wrap it up by, I'm just curious, well, this thing that keeps up coming up this season for me is with these unseen stories of food, or that there's just a lot of unanswered questions, right? So when you work on something like transformation, mm-hmm. transformation's not known, mm-hmm. right? Transformation's transforming. Right. And what, like, why do that? <laughs> You know, why, why work on a system? Why create a model? Why do this thing where, you know, there are going to be these questions that are unanswered. What, what happens as you push this thing forward? That might be more than one question. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, really, this is the question of life. Like why, why do anything? Um, I mean, to me, uh, I love all this because it's real and, um, you know, the question of how does a community nourish itself in a way that is sustaining and sustainable is a timeless question that human communities have grappled with forever. And we study, we go and we dig up bones and we analyze them to try to figure out how some group answered this question in some place in some time. Um, and so I feel like my day to day work is engaged with a very central and timeless question of being a human being on the planet. Um, how we organize, how we make decisions. Um, uh, all of this is uh, totally universal and completely connected to with food. I mean, I'm very interested in sort of like anthropological research, for example, that looks at hunter gatherer type food strategies and sees that there's certain organizational, um, aspects that go along with it. Um, you, te- you know, in a hunter gatherer situation, there is absolutely no motivation to accumulate wealth because anything that you have, you have to carry. And so you don't want to carry too much. And so, um, you know, the, the distinction between sort of a quote unquote hunter gatherer, Uh, approach versus an agriculturalist approach is very interesting to me. And then, you know, what, one, part of what I find intriguing about permaculture is that it's kind of trying to draw from both of those and to put them together in some way. And I think that you could very much describe, uh, pre-contact California indigenous food strategies as being permacultural and, um, Uh, There's a great book that everybody should read called Tending the Wild, written by MCAT Anderson, which is the other book I reference in my article on Medium, that is um, basically chronicling how the communities that were here before European uh, decimation of them, um, how they manage their food system and it's extremely permacultural, you know, it's like presciently permacultural. Um, so we're kind of like stumbling on this permaculture thing, like, oh, isn't this a great idea? Like, let's make it a little bit less work and less disruptive to the system than agriculture, but still active and participatory and, um, uh, and, and sort of looking at these zones and all this kind of stuff. Well, the indigenous people here were doing this for 8,000 years. And so, which A is great, great feedback that actually that could work and does work. Um, of course, they weren't dealing with the population density that we're dealing with. And so that adds a whole nother factor. Um, but these things are real. These these are real questions. So, yeah, I think part of the thing about the transformation is it's open-ended. We don't, you know, we have um, some visions of what that next kind of step would look like. But we had no idea when we started this that, you know, we would need a governance system or stumble on holocracy, or any of that. That's all been just part of life and part of living, and, um, and that's part of what I find so compelling about this work is that, you know, it's just, um, it's very vibrant, it's very uh, challenging, it's extremely challenging, but it's also very
2: um, core, it's central, it's meaningful. How can we follow along with what you're thinking about this stuff? Um,
1: well, yeah, definitely. If, if, if I keep doing articles on Medium, then that's going to be a great way. So the article that I published was called The, the most dangerous notion in reinventing organization. I can send you a, a link to it. And so you could put it up on your, on your website. Um, so I'd love for people to read that and comment if, um, if that's something. And then, yeah, I mean, uh, we're also, we're going to work on a book. We're working on a, we're working on a proposal. And so that'll distill a lot of this into one place, which will also have recipes. So um, I don't know. We'll just see where that
2: takes us. Perfect. Thanks, Jessica. Thank
1: Thank you.
0: Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us, by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. DeliciousRevolutionShow.com
2: Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Of course, you can get in touch with us in lots of different ways, and they are all on the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening.